If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is toward the end of the Bible. First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation, uh, just a few books before the end. First Peter, chapter two, verse nine, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'll read that again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. You may be seated. The question, the question, what is my identity, is arguably the most important question one can ask behind who is God. By identity, this great thing we are trying to discover for ourselves, I mean something much more than your government name or what's on your driver's license This grand question of identity, who am I, is a question of purpose, meaning, and worth. What makes me purposeful? What gives me meaning? And am I worth something? It bears within itself a host of sub-questions, such as who designed me? Who or what is most important? And how am I connected to it? What do I exist to do? What is my ideal state? Am I valuable? And how so? How do I know if I'm becoming the person I'm supposed to be? Questions like these make up the broader question of identity. No issue is more crucial, more potent, or more imperative to get right If you answer the identity question correctly, you are well on your way to life with God on earth and life with him eternally. But if you answer the identity question wrongly, meaning you find it in the wrong place, things will only go from bad to worse. So how do we know whether we're answering the identity question correctly? Well, first, we have to parse the idea of identity itself. What does the word identity even mean? The word identity derives from the early Latin term idem, which means same, and the later Latin term identitas, which means the quality of being identical. It implies two things lining up with each other to make a perfect match. We identify ourselves by our names because our names make a perfect match with us. Now, for those who don't know, we just had a daughter uh, almost eight weeks ago, almost two months ago. And she is uh, right up there in the front being rocked. And, yep. 
All I can say is this. People keep saying she's cute, and people keep saying she looks like her daddy. And so I'm trying to make a connection. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Now, we gave our daughter a name. Our daughter's name is Audrey. And thus, Audrey identifies her. If someone were to call her Kristen, they would be misidentifying her because their incorrect understanding of who she is does not line up with, is not identical to what her birth certificate and social security card say about her. Her identity is Audrey. She's been given that name. It's identical to who she is and not any other name. Now, this principle of identity as two things being the same applies at a grander level. Just as parents give their children names to identify who they are, God has made human beings in a particular fashion for a particular reason. We gave Audrey a name. God gave us a meaning. He gave us a purpose. He has made all human beings with a design for meaning, purpose, and worth. And he has principally made us to be forgiven of sin, to seek him, and to find pleasure in worshiping him. God has made us like a toaster. And instead of plugging into the wall, which is him... We are plugging into the counter itself, plugging onto the floor, and plugging everywhere except the one source of power, meaning, and worth that will make us who we are. We are finding ourselves in the wrong place. Now, for those who are Christians, we have our identity in its purest and complete form. Because God has rescued us, and He's building us up according to His purposes That's who we are. That's who I am. I don't have to ask the question, who am I? God saved me. God gave me a purpose. God made me his child. He has designed me to do certain things with my life on earth, and then he has designed me to do certain things in heaven. I don't have an identity issue unless I want to have one. It's up to us to make sure we're identifying ourselves according to his design and not something else. You see the connection I'm trying to make? Audrey goes with her. Christian design, that, has, that which has been established by God, goes with Christian. Audrey goes with her. Christian design goes with Christian. And if we are not identifying ourselves with, if our minds are not identical to that Christian design, then that is an identity issue. That is a misidentification. You wouldn't like it if someone deliberately called you a name that wasn't yours. Hey, Nate, John, John, I really like that prayer, John. You killed it up there, bro. You killed it, grilled it, put it in a wrapper, sealed it, gave it to Walmart, and we mealed it. That was a freestyle, by the way. But that's not John. That's Nate. That is Nate. Now, 
So often we do the same thing because we define ourselves by things and according to names and according to purposes and visions and callings that don't make us who we really are. Soon Audrey will learn the name we've given her. And we hope that she'll understand herself as Audrey and not as Kristen. Christian, understand yourself as God has defined you. Line yourself up with God's design for you, which is laid out right here in 1 Peter 2.9. Now, in light of this truth, it goes without saying that one's identity is not something human beings create arbitrarily out of our own will. You don't make yourself... You find yourself or you don't find yourself. You don't make your identity. Now, there is an entire industry devoted to helping people reinvent themselves and determine their own purpose. Now, I can understand an industry to help you find your career or to find your educational path. But no industry, no Tony Robbins, no positive motivational speaker can tell me who I really am. And tell me to dig within and find the greatness and and build my own life my way according to my terms. Because God's done that already. And it's not my duty to make my own life, but to shape my life around Him. One's identity is something that is already fixed, determined by God, and it is our task to find it and line up or identify with or become identical to it. Going back to the idea of sameness, right? Identify means sameness, achieving sameness with. The pursuit of identity can be defined as this. You want to know how to find your identity? Here you go. Here you go. Understanding who you are And lining up your understanding of who you are with who you actually are according to God. There you go. That's 75% of your issues gone. Right there. Your identity is matching your understanding of who you are with God's understanding of who you are. Put another way. I've found my identity... If what I think about myself, my meaning, purpose, and worth, is identical to what God thinks about my meaning, purpose, and worth, and I've failed to find it, if I'm defining myself any other way, perhaps within my own vision for personal glory or significance. Now, it can be argued that the origin of sin on earth, Adam and Eve's fall, thanks Adam, thanks Eve, is the most catastrophic example of answering the identity question wrongly. Not only did they do wrong, they tried to become someone they were not meant to become. And now the 100 billion or so people who have ever walked the face of the earth have suffered because of their misunderstanding of who they are. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, with the false promise of becoming someone they could not and were not meant to become, God. Remember what he told them? 
If you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. They liked that idea. They didn't want to just have fellowship with God. They wanted to be God. Jesus. They bought and brought brokenness. They bought a lie and brought the brokenness and pain upon themselves and upon us by believing this lie, misidentifying themselves. Instead of rooting their identity and being in relationship with their maker, they wanted to become equal to him. And the rest is a dark and painful history. Our daughter is born selfish. She is born a sinner. And it will be our job to teach her the difference between sin and good. It will be our job as parents to show her God's word and God's way and God's will. To, to give her resources so that the Holy Spirit might change the orientation of her heart towards sin and slowly sanctify her. May God make her a Christian. And she will start out that way because Adam and Eve did not want to be God's servants, but God's equals. Now, 1 Peter 2.9 is one of the New Testament's clearest descriptions of a Christian's identity. Let's read it one more time. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, listen closely. Because God has spoken, you never have to worry again about finding your purpose or figuring out who you're supposed to be. That's right. It's right here, gloriously set in stone. And it will never change. It will never change. You've got it. You've got the answer to the biggest questions. You've got the solution to your biggest problem. It's done. It's right there if you would only seek after Jesus this is your identity. This is what defines you. And it's up to you to make your understanding of yourself identical to this truth. No more identity issues ever again. How does that sound? Now, you and I might struggle with the smaller issues of career or life calling or, or what education to pursue. But the biggest issue has already been decided. Amen. But this text isn't referring simply to personal identity for a Christian. It's referring to our corporate identity as the church. Notice that our text is referring to people using plural language and not just a person. When he says chosen race, royal priesthood, nation, a people, this is all in plural form. The inspired apostle Peter is writing to the Christian church in general present and future. He's writing to Jerusalem. He's writing to Asia Minor. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the church that will receive these letters just as much as he's writing to us. These words are meant for us almost 2,000 years later. He tells Christians that we are four things. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. As a result of who we are, he also explains why we exist, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ. 
And so here you go. You want to know what makes your identity your identity? You've got four uh, indicative things, four things that tell you who you are, and one imperative thing, one thing that tells you what you should do. Four things that tell you who you are, one thing that tells you what you should do. Tony Robbins can't top that. Who you are, what you should do. Right here. Don't worry about it anymore. Now, it's interesting to note um, that uh, the statement of who we are has much more to do with God than it has to do with us. How about that? Your identity has more to do with God than it does with you. But that's what makes you, you. Because God made you. God is not a part of our lives. We are a part of God's world. How many issues do people have because they try to make God a part of their lives? God chose us. He possesses us. He has made us into a priesthood and nation to represent him. And he's called us to proclaim his excellencies. We exist for God to know him, to be saved by him, to worship him. To declare his glory to a dying world whose death is rooted in rejecting him. To take eternal pleasure in him. To lose ourselves in the vast joy of his perfections. To put it concisely, we exist to take pleasure in God's glory and to share it. We find meaning in marveling at his majesty My identity is bound up in falling in love with God's power, with his worth, with his goodness, and his endless other attributes, and in making these things known to a world that longs for him even as it rejects him. Just this past week, two movie trailers came out. One for the Star Wars movie that's coming out next year or in December of this year. And then one for the Batman and Superman movie that's coming out in 2016. And when it came out, it elicited a deep and widespread emotional response. Bruh, you got to watch this trailer. The glory and purpose and power and significance and weightiness of these two themes... This, this theme of awesome Batman and awesome Superman battling it out and, and this theme of Star Wars which has touched millions of hearts, the, 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 the weight of that simply drew in tens of millions of viewers. And at the box office it will sell hundreds of millions of dollars combined. That's what it means to build your life around a glorious thing. To be captivated by the weight of something, to be excited by it, to anticipate it, to plan that sick day around it. I'm going to be sick on December 16th, 2015, because Star Wars is coming out. We know how to plan our lives around glory. We just don't know how to plan our lives around a glory that big. It's not foreign to us. We have the right engine, but the wrong fuel. This is not abstract or poetic. So, on the surface, it might seem that Peter's choice of words to describe who we are is tribalistic or divisive. Chosen race and holy nation and royal priesthood, that's a, that's a language that seems a little negative, doesn't it? But it's not. It's not tribalistic or divisive. 
Now, chosen race could literally be translated, uh, translated chosen kind, as in a different kind of people who were chosen out of the world and transformed, set apart for God. This is synonymous with uh, its other reference in the verse, holy nation. Now, holy nation can literally be translated set apart people group. Set apart people group. I am part of a set-apart people group that Nate is also a part of. Now, we don't have to go to Ancestry.com to realize that I come from a different part of the world than Nate does, yet we are both a part of the same set-apart people group. How about that? Keep in mind that these distinctions of race and people group refer to something far larger than biological race. They refer to an entirely new ethnos or people group derived from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This means that because God has made me one of his children, I am more of a Christian than I am a white person. I mean, I'm as white as it gets. I'm German and English. That's like historical oppressor all over the place. I pay historical oppressor tax every year. Just kidding. But guess what? I am more of a Christian than I am a cracker. I am more of a Christian than I am a white person. Christian is here. White is here. For Nate, Christian is here. African-American is here. What that means is that Nate and I have more in common than I do with many white people. Because we're part of the same chosen people. Ethnos. People group. A new one. Not designed or delineated by biology, but by spirituality. My heart is changed. And speaking of the heart, if I were dying... I could still get a transplant from any person in this room. Just saying. IJS. I'm just saying. My identity as part of God's chosen people, my Christianness is primary. It goes to the top because the one who gave it to me goes to the top. My Christianness goes to the top because the God who made me a Christian comes from the top. He is primary, and so my identity in him is primary. Now, this identity of mine is not something that I chose. It's not something that I, in my own will, outside of my own sin, chose. I was a slave to sin, broken, hurting, helpless, Hopeless in a lost and dark world. And my identity, what makes me me, is something of being chosen, being acted upon, being pitied by God in our lowly state, my lowly state, and being made a possession. In no way does this identity imply 
that one's faith in Christ is the result of a personal decision or lifestyle change like choosing to become a health person or choosing to become an educated person or choosing a certain type of entertainment. Oh, I think I'm going to explore Christianity because I feel like uh, it speaks to me spiritually and I feel like I'm going to uh, benefit from it. No, if you're a Christian, you were changed by something bigger than you. You might be a spiritual person who's fascinated with Christian ideas. That is different from having a new identity. There's a spiritual person and there is a Christian. And these two things are different. And if you're not sure if God has genuinely rocked your world, well, guess what? You will get a chance today to to think through it and to talk through it with one of our leaders. That is going to be there for you. If, if you're not sure if you've just done the spiritual thing or if you are genuinely a new identity Christian whose entire life is changing, then we're here to talk and help you think through that. But don't leave here today if you're not sure. Being a Christian is not an identity of internal determination but one of external transformation and destination. Being a Christian is not an identity of internal determination, but it's one of external transformation and destination. If you're a Christian, then you will have felt a moment in your life, at least sometime, where you were like, I've got to change I can't live like this anymore. I want to be different. And I want a new purpose. And God has given me a new purpose. By golly, I am different now. I'm changed. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to add Jesus to my life. I want to add my life to Jesus' back. I want a new purpose. If you felt something like that before, then that's what it means to be changed. An external force rocking your world in spite of you, and moving you towards something better. It's not Oprah. Not, we like Christian ideas. We're going to add them to our lifestyle and see what changes they make. See if being a Christian makes me a better person. Whatever makes me a better person. That's not Christianity. God initiates our new identity and God carries us through for his own sake and for our pleasure. God does not exist for me and God and I don't even exist for each other in a mutually dependent relationship. I exist for God and in this truth I find who I'm meant to be. I need to tell myself that every single day. Even right now, my body is rushing through with goosebumps and electricity because I don't always believe that I exist for God. I believe that God exists for me and God exists to help build me up according to my kingdom and my dreams. And if God doesn't fit them, then you can get out. That's how I think because I'm a sinner. But the truth is, I don't deserve to exist. The truth is, two people die every second in this world. The truth is, there are upward of 10,000 life functions that could stop in my nervous system right now, and I would drop dead, but because of God's sovereignty, He lets me live. 
I exist. We exist for God and not the other way around. And until we get that, the Christian life will be confusing, won't make sense, and it will be like a child trying to understand calculus. When 1 Peter 2.9 says that we exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, it doesn't mean that we should set up a weekly soapbox in the highlands and preach for 30 minutes about God saving us, although some people might have that desire. What this means that God has called us, that God's purpose for us is to proclaim his excellencies, what this means more broadly is that the general orientation of our thinking and speech over the course of our lives should be toward God's goodness, specifically in saving and changing sinners so they may experience him. To put that another way, if I'm on earth, my purpose is to speak words, to speak truth, about who God is and what he has designed for human beings. And to call human beings, my brothers and sisters, my family members, friends and co-workers, in various ways and to various degrees, to call them in a Godward direction. An implication of this is that if God is something that rarely comes up in conversation, you go six months without talking about the person of Jesus in your life, you go a year without talking about it, It just doesn't come up. It's a framework that you have in here, but it doesn't show on the outside like underwear, something that you use to support yourself, but don't really show it to the world. God is not like that. If that's what your faith is like, that's what your daily walk is like, then it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means that you're not living up to your purpose. We're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation uh, to, to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. I want the people in my life to know that God has made a change happen in my heart. That should be a desire. Now, do I live up to that desire enough? No, I don't. And I need to change that. I'm going to change that today. And I'm going to get better at this. I'm I'm preaching to myself, trust me, just as much as to everyone in here. This is a sermon for everybody, including me. But I want to live up to my purpose. Otherwise, I'd rather go to heaven. Because if I'm just on earth to chill to just live life, to do my thing, quite honestly, I'd rather do it with people who aren't sinners, like people in heaven. Why would you want to spend the rest of your life on earth doing nothing but just living life and chilling when you could live life and chill up there? But you are on earth to speak truth and to make the goodness and the excellencies of God known to a world that doesn't know him yet. That's why you're on earth. That's why I'm on earth. That's what Christians are on earth for. Otherwise, it would make more sense that the second God saves us, we die and go straight to him. But he saves us and we stay here for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years so that we can send that message on to someone else. Whatever you think, talk about and live for. His excellencies should be the main thing about your voice to the world. Now, his excellencies, what what, what do we mean by his excellencies? This just means his glorious attributes, his weight 
and authority and unending significance. And these things are our future pleasure and our current anchor in a tumultuous sea of human brokenness. I cling to God's goodness and his glory when things crash around me. Not just the goodness of other people, not just calling my friend to reassure me, although I might do that, but God's goodness and his perfections and his purpose and his plan and his purity and his power, all of these things are what I run to when things are running out of control. Needless to say, they should probably come up pretty often in conversation. Knowing and experiencing the glory of God is our ultimate goal. Knowing and experiencing the glory of God is our ultimate goal. And so we exist for declaration of this glory. To know God's nature, his commandments, his worth, and his design, and to express it to a dying world. Now, some people might hear all this and think, that's fine and poetic and all. It's beautiful. That's that's fantastic. But I'm not really that type of person to talk about things like that. Sure, I believe it. It's true. But I'd rather just live the Christian life and try to serve people in a concrete way. But God's glory is more than Christian theater. This great glory of his is not a lofty, faraway ideal for the Christian life, like a far-off smiling sun watching over our everyday dealings with unconditional approval while we sporadically acknowledge it as the giver of light and warmth. Rather, God's glory is the principal goal of every interaction, struggle, triumph, and effort of the Christian life. Like health and security and progress. These are the things we live for. God's glory is not my smiling sun off in the distance. This is not reading rainbow. The more you know with the little sun in the corner smiling down on us. And we acknowledge him from time to time. God's glory is my purpose. Just the way that health and security and financial freedom. that all the, These things we, we consider our purpose. God's glory is that purpose for us. And if that's abstract then by golly, work so that it doesn't become abstract. And don't just cast it off. Do not discount God's glory for its apparent abstractness. Rather, cling to it with all your might as the meaning for which you exist. After all, everything you do, say, and think at every given moment of every day is rooted in the pursuit of some type of glory. Think about it. God's glory seems abstract, but everything you do, say, or think, or feel is rooted in the pursuit of some type of glory. Let's do an experiment. I call it the why question. It's a philosophy exercise, and it always has the same answer. It's great. Why did I get up today? Well, uh, I got up quickly because I got up too late, because I stayed up too late, and I got up to go to church. Why did I, Jared, go to church? Well, I went to church to be with God's people and uh, apparently to preach because today was my day to preach. And why am I preaching? To uh, equip, encourage, build up, edify God's believers and then to speak to anyone who is not a Christian and call them to trust in Jesus. Okay, why are you doing that? Okay, now it starts to get a little more complex, a little bit more abstract. Well, I'm doing that because I want people to experience God. Why do you want people to experience God? Because that's their purpose. Why is that their purpose? Because God's glory is the end and all for all things. 
and people exist to know it. Why? Brick wall, rock bottom. Because that's the end. Every time you ask the why question, you will always get down to the glory of. The glory of. Why have certain ethnic groups risen up over time to declare their dominance over others and hurt people? Because at the root level, they believe in the glory of their ethnic group. And that's it. For the glory and power and worth of their ethnic group. Why do businesses exist? For profit, to make money. Why? Because of the glory of having the power of money. Why the glory of power having money? You can't answer anything. It's the irreducible bottom for every single motivation of the human experience is the glory of something. And so we need to find the right one. We think that it's abstract to live for God's glory, but it's not because we live for a glory in every single thing we do. Whether that's the glory of self or the glory of power or the glory of pleasure. It's all there for us. So, if you really think about it, um, glory is all we can ever do anyway. So why not uh, align your life and your dreams with the greatest glory of glories? God and his renown. Here's something that will rock your world. Are you ready? Every human motivation boils down to either the glory of man or the glory of God. While you're on your way to Indies or wherever you're going to go for lunch, I want to go to Indies. Wherever, wherever you're going to go, think about it. Do an experiment. You probably won't do an experiment because you'll be hungry. But think about it. Every human interaction can be rooted in a desire for the glory of man or the glory of God. And we already know the first one doesn't work very well. So life is more simple than we think. Now, now that we've looked at our identity more closely, and most importantly, the purpose for which we were created, this is going to get good here, we need to use these truths to help demolish three popular and crippling myths about Christian community. Now that we've understood who we are and why we are, it's time to look at who we are not. Because so often we believe lies that don't get pushed out of the way because there's not enough truth to push them out of the way. So we've put the truth first so that we have power to demolish the lies. You know how they say you can't get rid of a lie unless the truth pushes it out? It's true. We are the church and we have a wonderful calling, but we spread misconceptions inside the church that take the place of our calling and dilute or weaken our calling. Because we're broken and sinful and insecure and misunderstand things, we limit ourselves by wrong beliefs and ideas about how Christians should think and act. We miss out on actually living on a daily basis this glorious identity and purpose we've been given. So, here are three common misconceptions about Christian community or the Christian life, each put in the form of a statement. Misconception number one, 
We exist to enjoy life, be good people, bring happiness to those around us, and pursue our dreams. I said misconception. Misconception one, we exist to enjoy life, to be good people, to bring happiness to those around us, and to pursue our dreams. This is an example of an unspoken but dominant sentiment among many Christians. This is something that a lot of people don't say, but it comes out in different ways. What's dangerous about this statement is, it's actually true, but it's incomplete. It's comfortably ambiguous in that it doesn't say anything untrue, but it doesn't emphasize what's most true. Said another way, this statement commits the error of improper emphasis, meaning it states something that's true, but not something that's most important. Yes, we do exist to enjoy life, to bring happiness to those around us and to pursue our dreams, but we primarily exist to do exactly what the text says, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ We enjoy life, we bring happiness and pursue dreams within the context of the greater and fuller purpose of speaking truths about God's glory and his plan to save people to a lost and dying world. The problem with saying that I'm just here to be a good person is that it's incomplete. What does being a good person mean? I can be a good person to somebody without doing what's most good for them. I can just be happy and, and, and cheerful guy, but live my whole life alongside a person who's on his way to hell and do nothing to minister to his deepest need. It's not just about being a good person. Christianity doesn't exist to make you a good person. It makes you a proclaimer of Jesus' plan. Now, another problem with this first misconception is that it's focused on people more than on God. If, if we exist to enjoy life, be good people, bring happiness to those around us and pursue our dreams, well, what, what happened to God? Where's God in that equation? Enjoyment, being good people, happiness, pursuing dreams, they're all about us. In fact, is, is there really anything distinctly Christian about this statement at all? Not really. I mean, these things seem like the goals of most people, Christian or not. A Muslim, a Buddhist, a Taoist, an atheist, a, a, a humanist, an agnostic. All these people would say, yeah, I exist to be a good person, to bring happiness to people's lives. So what's, what's the distinction? Where's the salt, brother? There's no flavor because there's no salt. The fact that many Christians try to define their faith under this very comfortable, world-pleasing umbrella shows that we're often equally interested in pleasing God and man. A Christianity that is focused on equally pleasing God and man is a Christianity that is ready to collapse. We like to emphasize the aspects of Christianity that will please everybody, while conveniently reducing the aspects of Christianity the world may not like. How many times have you heard people say, Jesus was a loving person who cared for the poor and, 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 and treated people with respect and sat with tax collectors and prostitutes and didn't judge people but accepted them the way they are. How many times have you heard people say that? And then I take them to Revelation 20 and 21 and you say, you know this Jesus? 
who sat with the tax collectors and, and, and accepted people and spoke truth and love, he also is a God of fierce judgment. And they say, well, no, I, don't, I think it's, the Bible's subject to interpretation. Oh, all of a sudden it's subject to interpretation when it's something you don't like? But when you talked about Jesus being a loving person, oh, all of a sudden, oh, it wasn't interpretation then, was it? It was just, that's how Jesus is. Well, guess what? Jesus is both. And sometimes he might not be easy to the taste. But we have to shape our lives around Jesus, not Jesus around our lives. The truth is, there are times when being a Christian might mean you won't enjoy life at all. When it might mean you have to completely let go of your dreams. And and when it might mean you simply won't make some or most people happy. That's just, that's the reality. The gospel is an offensive message. It evokes deep emotions. If you're doing your Christianity to make people happy, then you're not doing your Christianity at all. Sometimes it will make them happy. Sometimes it won't. But are you speaking the truth? That's what matters. Yes, living a God-saturated, biblically-informed Christian lifestyle will bring happiness and approval and make some dreams come true, but not all the time. Not all the time. There's a reason the crowd celebrated Jesus on Sunday and murdered him on Friday. There's a reason that the same people that rejoiced when he came into town crucified him less than six days later. That reason is the human heart is fickle, and the human heart is not something to build Christianity around. All you have to do is go to a YouTube comment board or a Facebook comment board to see that our hearts go up and down with the times, our emotions are crazy, and we will adjust to things and hop on bandwagons as quickly as we hop off. You really want to build your faith around that? We can't build our faith around that. The human heart is so fickle. I want to build my faith on the God of the universe and not just on the whims or predilections of a sinful society. That's what I want my foundation to be on. My goal is not just to make people like me. It's to make people know the truth. And I'm going to try to be as loving as possible as I tell them. Our primary goal is not the world's approval, but the world's acquiescence to Jesus. Our primary goal is not the world's approval, but the world's acquiescence to Jesus. The first might happen, but the second must happen. Jesus Christ, in all his glory and his commandments, is meant for the human heart, sentiments, and emotions to shape around him, not the other way around. So by all means, be a good person. By all means, pursue your dreams. By all means, make people around you happy and enjoy life. I sure will. But do all these things with the right perspective. What's the bigger picture? Second misconception. I love this one. I love this one because it's so true but so untrue at the same time. Number two, a Christian's main purpose is to love people. I'll let that soak in the crock pot for a second. A Christian's main purpose is to love people. True, untrue, maybe. As crazy as it sound, as it might sound, this isn't true. This statement, like the previous, commits the error of improper emphasis. 
A Christian's main purpose is to honor and glorify God, which includes loving people. So this statement is true conditionally. When put in proper context and given proper emphasis. Does that make sense? It, it's, not, it's not just love people. It's love people according to God's design. So it's conditional. You just need to stop getting in my business and just love people. I had to do the sideways head for that one. A Christian's, uh, I mean, before, we, we need to qualify what we mean by love. What is love? What is love? We need to qualify that. Because if you're telling me I need to love people, and I need to stop judging people and just love them, and I need to let so-and-so live with whoever he wants to live with because I just need to love him and not judge him, well, let's, let's talk about what we mean by love then, because, brother, we might have two different conceptions of what love means. God is love. We know that from 1 John 4, 8. But this is not the uh, transitive property of addition. God is love, but love is not God. God is love, but love, this Victorian humanistic conception of love that we've defined, is not God. God defines love. We don't. God defines love. We can't take our personal definitions of love, which often have this funny tendency of allowing people to live however they want and impose them on everyone else. And moreover, tell people that it's unchristian not to love people. That is crazy. It's absolutely crazy that that so-and-so can be living in an adulterous affair with somebody, sleeping around with somebody, and, and so-and-so confronts him on it, and they say, brother, you need to not emphasize the negative. You have issues, too. You just need to let him, him and God work it out. You just need to love him. That is not love. That's not love, because that doesn't accord with God's character and nature. Love is not letting people live however they want to live. Love is not holding back when you see someone about to drive over a cliff. That's not love. We call it love, but it's not. If two people love each other, well, then you should let them do what they want to do. Really? Is that love, though? Who, did, who gets to define love? What if, what if I, I went to a restaurant this afternoon and paid them in leaves? What if I went to a restaurant, Muscle and Burger Bar is one of my favorite restaurants, and I went there and, and I ordered a $14 burger because it's actually worth that much, it's good, but then I got leaves out of my pocket that I got from a tree. That, that tree right there, that green tree, it's green, it's leaves, see, green? And, and I gave it to the person, and I said, well, that's, that's money. And he said, no, it's, are you, you okay, sir? And they said, no, I got 14 leaves. And you know what, I'll give you, a 16, I'll give you 16 leaves just because you did a great job, man. You really killed it today. And he says, uh, sir, is everything okay? I said, of course everything's okay. I just picked up 16 leaves. That's more than okay. That's okay plus a 10% tip. The thing is, 
I don't get to define what money is. So why do we act like we get to define what love is? We don't. What is love? It's not letting people sin. That's, what, that's, that's part of it. What if love isn't what we often tend to think of it as being? What if it's a good bit more narrow than most people prefer it? This might seem crazy, but what if love has very little to do with people in the first place? Hearkening back to 1 John 4, 8, let's reexamine the relationship between God and love, because God defines love, we don't. There's a lot more to it than people realize. God is love, and if we love God, we keep his commandments, right? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, God defines what love is and how love works, and we don't have freedom to invent our own man-centered standards on what constitutes love. Listen closely. Because, God, because love originates in the nature and character of God, we can say that love, here's your definition, here it is, love is that which most, or love is that which treats the beloved in a way that most accords with the nature and character of God. Meaning, I love people the most when I treat them in a most God-oriented way. Because God hates sin, if I see my brother or sister in Christ in open, repetitive, and unrepentant sin, it is most loving for me to talk to them about it, and it is not loving for me to keep my mouth shut. If someone were driving off a cliff, you would tell them to stop, wouldn't you? That's the most loving thing to do. One definition of insanity is letting people destroy themselves when you have the power not to. You have the power to keep them. And yet we say it's not loving to confront someone. I am more loving when I do say or think that which most accords with God's character and commandments. And I am less loving when I do say or think that which deviates from God's character and commandments. Now, we have this really bad habit of emphasizing the things about God we like, spitting out the rest, and calling it Christianity. We have this really bad habit of doing that. It's like going to Famous Dave's, and you have a plate full of meat and bones, because you took what you like and you left the rest. That's what we do with God, and we, we call it Christianity. We take the parts of the Bible we like, we don't emphasize, or we spit out, or sometimes even cut away, like Thomas Jefferson did, the parts we don't like, and we call that faith. An incomplete faith is no faith at all. Sometimes love will feel great, but other times not so much. But if we have loved in a Godward way, we have loved rightly. So we need to make a great shift in how we think about love for the rest of your life. I want you to commit today to think about love differently than you ever have before. Don't think about it according to what human beings tell you love is. Think about it this way. Doing, saying, and feeling that which most accords with God's nature and character because God is love. There's the new definition, the new school. Instead of defining loving people as a primarily human-to-human thing based on our own sense of right and wrong, which is usually more wrong than right, we need to define love completely based on who God is and what he requires. Now, this will be a cosmic shift for many of us, but it's necessary. Otherwise, you might be loving someone right into hell.
by drawing them away from what matters most. I'm getting to the finale here. This third one's going to be really good. I'm going to mess some people up right now. As a prelude to the finale, when people say things like, you just need to love people and accept them for who they are, this is usually a good-sounding but slippery euphemism for unconditionally letting people live however they want. You just need to love me and accept me for who I am. Really? Who said that? God did. He said you need to love people. God accepted people for who they were. He didn't judge them. Read Revelation 18, bro. Like, he sat with them, yes, but that wasn't the end of it. Something came after his sitting down and talking and having dinner and hanging out. There's the wine press. Read the wine press passage, and you'll see what God thinks about sin. You just need to love people, accept them for who they are. This statement takes God completely out of the equation and puts people and their sinful preferences at the center. Don't fall for that trick. Don't let people get you with that one. That's not what love is. If someone ever accuses you of not being loving because you're calling them out for sinning against God, make sure you, and they they say, you're not being loving. You just need to accept me for who I am. Make sure you ask them whether they mean that you haven't acted in a way consistent with God's nature and commandments. The only time I have not loved a person is when I have acted in a way that's not consistent with God's nature and commandments. I can feel secure. All right, here's the finale. You ready for this one? We're not supposed to judge How many times have you heard this one? Christians are not supposed to judge. Who are you to judge me? You have issues too. I don't want to hear anything you have to say because I know what you did last month. I know what you're doing. I know what you're going to do. So you have nothing you can say to me. Who are you to judge me? We're not supposed to judge This might be the most egregious and widespread misconception of all. Now, this statement usually gets thrown around when someone gets defensive about sin in their life and doesn't want to hear anyone tell them they're wrong. How many times, who in here has had a situation where you were lovingly and gently talking to a person about an issue in their life and they said, who are you to judge me? Has anyone ever experienced that? Yeah. Usually it, it, it comes up when someone is living in sin And doesn't want anyone to tell them they're wrong. It's just pride. It's silly. They simply love living in sin and they read a certain few passages in scripture out of context. And made the ingenious determination. This is what they they think. The God of the universe who died a horrific death as a punishment for their sins. Doesn't want anyone to say anything about their sins. Does that make sense? Absolutely not. So, so God doesn't want me to judge. But God himself judged his son for the sins of the world. God is not a God of judgment. He's a God of love. Really? Really? Well, then you, you got both judgment and love wrong. God crushed God. God crushed God because of his judgment against sin. And guess what? That was love also. Double whammy. His judgment was his love in that moment on the cross. 
When Jesus, the God of the universe, took on himself the weight of man's sin, and God, in a matter of six hours, crushed him with the most inconceivable psychological torture that can be envisioned. God turning away from God, and you're telling me that I can't talk to you about your porn addiction? Because God is not a God of judgment, but love? Moreover, person who says you're not supposed to judge, they want everyone to live however they please. Live and let live, right? Well, live and let live usually turns into live and let die unless some truth comes into the equation. God's loving. God forbid that God would ever use a Christian to point out sin in another Christian's life. God forbid. God's working on him. Really? How does God work on people? Well, he works by his Holy Spirit. But this dude's been sleeping with a woman for six years. That, spirit's, that spirit ain't working, bro. Well, God, God, he'll come around. God uses people to shape people. It's the truth. I'm going to take you through five different scriptures to prove it. But just take my word for it now. God uses people to shape people. If I'm living in sin... If I uh, have something in me that I'm not noticing, I fully expect and embrace and anticipate that Nate will throw down the Nate hammer on me and judge me. Judge me. Yes, I said it. I want Nate to judge me for the things I'm doing because I want God to not judge me later. Only God can judge me. How do you plan to beat the case? Only God can judge me. Only God. I'm trying to be Tupac. It's not working. I don't want God to judge me. Don't you get it? I want people to deal with my issues now so that I can have God more fully and I can do my life better for the rest of my Christian life. You really want to live 60 or 70 years with nobody telling you nothing? He can't tell me nothing. He's living in sin too. He has issues too. Only God can judge me. I need God to use people to change me. I need to be different. I need to be better. How am I going to be better unless God uses people to help me? So, the problem with this misconception, unlike the other two, is that it's completely untrue. In all the Bible's 66 books, you will not find one passage that unconditionally calls people to not judge each other. It just isn't there anywhere. You will find passages like Matthew 7 that tell us not to judge, but it tells us not to judge in a self-righteous or hypocritical way. You know, this is the log and the speck in the eye passage, right? We all know this passage. We've been told this passage by a person whom we're, we're combating, and they, and they say, well, listen, uh, you have a log in your eye. Don't try to take the speck out of mine. But if you read that passage a little more closely you'll notice that it's not telling you not to judge. It's saying work on yourself, then judge. Now, an example of the type of judgment Jesus is condemning in Matthew 7 would be a person in an adulterous relationship criticizing a married person for flirting with a coworker. Yeah, if you're in an adulterous relationship and you enjoy criticizing your coworker for flirting, 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's called having a log in your eye while you're trying to take a speck out of someone else's. But read the passage. We're commanded to first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How about that? Jesus is saying, don't be a hypocrite. Work on your issue. But then, judge. Help your brother. He's saying, take the log out so you can help with the speck. Guess what? Maybe that person who's in the adulterous relationship, he cuts it off. He gets restored, healed. His marriage is healthy. And then the person, uh, the person who's still flirting with that coworker, six months, 12 months later, he's still doing it. Well, guess what? This person can talk to that person now because he's dealt with his issue. He's not being a hypocrite. He's not being self-righteous. He's saying, bro, bro, you, you got to change some things, man. And yeah, that person might fire back, well, look at you. Look what you were. And I say, yeah, look what I was doing. But God saved me. God restored me. God used other people to call out sin in my life. And so God's using me to help you. It's not about me. It's not about egos. It's about, I want you to change. I want you to, I want you to, to, to have a right relationship with God, man. That's what it's about. Brothers, Galatians 6.1 says this. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Should restore him. That's another word for judge. That's another word for discern what's happening in his life and work gently and humbly to help him. Yes, we are supposed to do this. Um, consider 1 Corinthians 5.12 which calls Christians to judge each other in order to protect each other from sin. In John 7, 24, Jesus calls believers to judge each other with righteous judgment. Even if you say, I have issues of my own, so I'm not going to try to fix someone else's. Keep in mind that, one, God has called people with issues to help people with issues. And two, if you want to be a Christian without issues, the only Christians that are like that are the Christians up there. Because as long as you're on earth, you're going to have issues. My issues have issues. My issues' issues have issues. And we all have them. But we're here to help each other. And that's okay. I don't have to be free of any issue in order to serve my brother or sister. When Nate comes at me, if I'm in sin, Nate's going to have issues. But I'm not going to use that against him. I'm going to say, if Nate is pointing me to God, and if Nate is calling me to change for the sake of honoring God better in my life, then I'm going to listen to that truth. As long as you're on earth, you will be a sinner. This is true. This doesn't automatically disqualify you from moving your brother or sister toward godliness. Should a sick person not tell another sick person where the hospital is because he's sick? I'll close with this paragraph. The idea is this. It's not that we're not supposed to judge each other as Christians. It's that we are supposed to do it with a humble posture an eye toward our own hearts, and a healthy awareness of our own need for grace. If you're a Christian living in unrepentant, open sin, and someone calls you out, don't get defensive. I'll say that again. If you're a Christian living in unrepentant, open sin, and someone calls you out, you would best to be not defensive. Be grateful. Because you'd much rather them call you out who don't have the power to throw you into hell than God call you out later. In fact, one verse, just one verse after the 1 John 4, 8 verse, God is love, 
we read that no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Wow. God is love, and no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. That means if I love God, my life is not going to be marked by a practice, a lifestyle, where it's normal for me to increase in sinfulness. And if that is the case, then I probably have not been born of God. And I sure am not going to get defensive if someone tells me, hey, bro, you need to watch your life. You need to check to make sure you're really a Christian. If you claim, this is going to be a hammer. I'm going to throw this hammer hard. If you claim to be a Christian, but live in habitual, unrepentant sin, and always get defensive anytime someone even comes close to judging you for it, then you probably aren't a Christian. Is that unloving? Is that unloving? No. It's just the truth. This is God's word speaking more than it's me. If you're a Christian living in unrepentant, habitual sin, and it's getting worse and worse and bigger and bigger, and you're loving it more and more, and then you get defensive when someone calls you out on it, then you probably aren't one. And it's time to make some changes. You're more than likely on your way to an eternity in hell. And trust me, that scares me just as much as anyone else. Because I've had periods in my life that last for, you know, a few weeks or a few months where I'm starting to do sinful things that I shouldn't do. And I have to tell myself, wait, if this continues on, there might be something wrong with me. And I need to get out of this quick. And I need to make a change now. Because I don't want to prove that my faith isn't real. I want God to change me and shape me. Remember, if God saved you, God can change you. You're okay. Just run back to the campfire. Don't go into the woods. Check your heart. Fear the Lord. And allow people to speak truth to you so that you can turn away from sin. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time together.